Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krause. I'm Richard Krause. We have a special standalone episode for you today to celebrate the release of Rogue One, a Star Wars story. I'm bringing you a quick interview with a guy called Pablo Hidalgo. Now, if you're a Star Wars geek, you will already know who he is. He needs no introduction. Uh, if you're not, though, uh, let's just think of him as Lucasfilm's resident Star Wars expert. He is the Star Wars man with the plan. He knows more about Star Wars than anybody on the planet, and he is part of the story group. They are the people that put all the pieces together, that make sure that the movies make sense, that they connect together, that there are no glaring errors in continuity and in the mythology. That's what he does, and he seems to do it effortlessly off the top of his head. Here's my conversation with him. You'll find out, for instance, that he grew up in Winnipeg, and why he thinks growing up in Winnipeg paved the way for the job that he has now. Tell me how you got caught up in Star Wars in the first place. I'm assuming that the first one that you saw was A New Hope. Was that in your hometown of Winnipeg? It was, yeah. Um, I, like many people my age or thereabouts, got swept up into it simply by being a child in the 70s. So uh, there was really no choice in the matter. It was such a juggernaut and it was such a, a thing that appealed to, to kids in that day that you kind of grew up being a Star Wars fan. It wasn't a, a really a, a thing that I found... Uh, the, the thing that was distinct was that it, it, I kept with it as I, you know, kept growing up and going through my teenage and now adult years and found a way to make it a job. <laughs> and that's the surprising thing about all this, because a lot of us have obsessions when we're younger. A lot of us play Dungeons and Dragons, or we're all over Star Wars, or whatever it might be, music. But very few of us take those steps forward and turn it into a career. If you can, because I know there's a lot of moving parts here, tell me how that happened for you. It was uh, a mix of serendipity and also, uh, you know, just having the skills to make the most out of an opportunity that presented itself. Uh, you know, uh, like anyone, you got your hobbies and you have a career path, and um, they both kind of bolstered each other, but I never really had any real ideas of getting a job at Lucasfilm. It's quite a ways away from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Mm -hmm. But um, I freelanced for one of our publishers, one of Lucasfilm's publishers that did the Star Wars role-playing game. And there was such a small community of writers back in the day that I quickly gained the reputation of someone who knows his facts and knows, you know, how to channel the Star Wars language and so forth. And and so when Lucasfilm was looking to hire a, uh, at the time it was a writer on the website at StarWars.com, they posted a job on their website uh, and I didn't think, like, what are the odds of them plucking someone from Winnipeg? I just went ahead and applied for it, <laughs> not really thinking, well, you know, we'll see what happens. But I kept getting on an um, increasingly shorter short list as they, as they went through candidates, and I, I, I ended up getting the job. Now, I've heard you talk about growing up in Winnipeg, and in some way, growing up there kind of gave you a leg up a little bit. And, and from what I understand, from what I've read, is that you said, essentially, it's cold a lot of the time. There wasn't that much to do. So you immersed yourself in Star Wars role-playing games and that kind of thing. Is that is that about right? I'd say that's accurate. But I'd say it's very indicative of, of, uh, of places that are snowbound for so long. And so, you know, for such a long part of the year, 
when I was growing up, my interests and hobbies not only included Star Wars, but also um, traditional animation. Mm-hmm. And if ever there was um, an art form that benefited from being stuck indoors, <laughs> it was an- traditional animation where you'd have to draw so many uh, individual illustrations um, over time. So I, you know, I, I used to volunteer at the National Film Board. I was a member of an animation society in Manitoba. And as you may know, you know, Winnipeg and animation have a long history, and I'm willing to credit that to uh, having been stuck indoors and having to do something with yourself during those long months. And now you've been with Lucasfilm for 17 years now. Is it 17 or 18? It'll be 17 in February. Wow. And, I mean, is this still the dream come true? Oh, absolutely. And if anything, it's, it's suddenly gotten this, you know, boost of adrenaline and creativity when uh, we we came, uh, not only part of the, the Disney company, but when, you know, before that, when Kathleen Kennedy uh, became president of Lucasfilm and basically started on this roadmap that would bring us back into a full production company, bringing movies to the the theater on a more regular basis. And and so, if anything, it's, it's you know, Star Wars has always been this worldwide hit, but now it feels like it's actually living up to this potential that it, it's always had. So you are the story master. You're part of the story group. Uh, and in terms of history, we're not just talking about the films and the TV shows, but also the novels, the comics, and the games. Is that correct? Correct. And, and so you help shape and form all those by keeping the, what I can only imagine are millions of details uh, straight. And so that if someone says, okay, in Rogue One, we're going to use this character, you will then know if it fits, if it doesn't fit, if it's out of time. Is that essentially the, the, the role that you play there? That is definitely part of the role, and uh, I share that responsibility with several of my colleagues on the story group, but I've been very fortunate enough to sort of be this this production historian, this person that filmmakers will come to and look to, to uh, you know, basically get that assurance of that authenticity. For Rogue One, it was a particularly uh, important because the movie really leads quite seamlessly into the films that we know. So in many ways, it's a historical picture. It just so happens that the history that we're matching is a fictional history, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people know it because they've been living in this world since 1977. Well, it's the scroll at the beginning of A New Hope, essentially come to life. That's that's essentially, that was John Knoll. John Knoll, who here is uh, at ILM, you know, came up with the idea for this movie, and that was his basic pitch, was taking that opening scroll and expanding it and finding out who were those rebels that stole the Death Star plans that are just only, you know, very briefly mentioned in floating yellow text at the start of that movie. Now, how far ahead do you start working on these projects? Oh, quite a bit. I mean, I seem to remember it being either 2012 or early 2013 when this germ of an idea was floated past us. So, For Rogue One? Uh, it's an interesting challenge to... Uh, uh, to live in this kind of time warp because, you know, we're thinking ahead many, many years, but now we're finally able to talk about a project that's been incubating for quite some time. And with that time frame, and with the the fact that there's going to be one of these movies every alternate year, so there'll be a Star Wars, then there'll be a standalone, a Star Wars and a standalone, how do you juggle all the elements with the standalones and then keep the stories cohesive? I mean, keeping track of the details 
uh, it just makes my head spin thinking about it. Uh, how? Uh, tell me the the process, and and or tell me, walk me through a day in the life, uh, just to to let me know how this kind of works for you. A day in the life of you know a Lucasfilm story team creative executive involves a lot of reading. We read a lot of pitches. We read a lot of scripts, uh, premises. Uh, and those scripts could be comic book scripts, they could be, you know, uh, outlines for novels, and they could be uh, production scripts from movies. We, you know, so we inject a lot of that content, but a lot of it comes from face-to-face communication during the earliest phases of these stories. So in this case, it was sitting with Gareth Edwards and, and, and Gary Whitta and, and screenwriters like Tony Gilroy and uh, Chris Weiss, and, and really coming to understand what it is they're looking to achieve in the movie and that needs to get hammered out first. It's that, that heart of the movie is the most important stuff that we, we shore up. The Star Wars details come after that, really. Uh, and honestly, it's not that difficult because we have this rich trove of, you know, more than like 40 years of history. And we have various tools at our disposal that help track this stuff. In addition to just having that fan perspective and that fan memory, um, I've said this before, everyone out there has a memory like this about something that they happen to be passionate about. It could be hockey statistics, it could be baseball scores, it could be classic car details. In my case, it happens to be this fictional universe. And so it's way more than just being a continuity cop. Yeah, it's it's, it's just basically what we want to do, and I think this is a great indication of of, uh, how important people take this. Every filmmaker, every creative that we invite onto Star Wars does it because they love it. And at the same time, there's a lot of pressure in there that they don't want to screw anything up or or take a misstep. So we're kind of, you know, we help act as this safety net, this assurance of don't worry about, you know, those those granular details. We have that. So you can focus on a lot of the other things that you want to do, and we will support you in, in making those creative decisions. And this is a question that quite likely you can't answer for me or won't be allowed to answer for me. But do you think that we will see at some point in these standalones uh, a a shift in tone? Things like maybe a space mystery, a Star Wars comedy, uh, something like that. Or will they be uh, fairly straight ahead in their storytelling? Well, I, I think I can, I can actually answer this a bit because we're seeing evidence of this in Rogue One. Um, what, one of the great successes of Star Wars, what George did when he made the original Star Wars, is he took, he made this amazing stew out of these incredible ingredients. He took a bit of Samurai movie, he took a bit of World War II movie, he took a bit of Spaghetti Western, and he cooked it all together with a lot of great new creative ingredients and created Star Wars. Uh, what the standalones allow us to do is change the ratios of those recipes. So in the case of Rogue One, you know, we've dialed back the Jedi mythology because that's not pertinent to this particular story, and we've definitely dialed up the World War II and espionage angle of, these, of this thing, more so than you might find in a traditional Star Wars movie. So I do think the standalones are a great place for that experimentation for, to basically create something new, um, and, and uh, we're, we're starting to see that with Rogue One. And I suppose that because you are one of the people who makes these kinds of decisions, uh, that it's very difficult for you to publicly engage in any kind of speculation. Speculation online about Star Wars is one of the, I mean, without it, there'd be no internet, I don't think. The internet would collapse. It would just be an empty void uh, because people like to second guess and and try and figure out what's going to happen in these movies. But you can't do that, can you, really? 
I can't, I have to tread lightly as much, you know, because I come from the fan community, so I do like continuing to be part of that community, but there are some discussions that I have to recuse myself from, um, or just take a light touch. The only thing I may get into is just ask someone, well, how do you know what you think you know? Um, right. Because, uh, you know, a lot of people really double down on uh, theories, and, and I don't want to dissuade anyone from that, but I do want to ask the question, like, what do you think you know, and what do you think you're, you're filling in? Um, but yeah, I, I can't, I can't get too involved in some of the deeper discussions. And do people try and stump you all the time on Star Wars trivia online? I mean, I see it on your Twitter page. <laughs> they do. They, they seem to genuinely ask questions they want to have answers for as opposed to test my knowledge. Right. The only time I get that sort of testing thing, and this is one of my favorite things, is if I'm ever engaging with an audience of young people, uh, say at a book signing or something like that, and what I find is when a kid asks me a Star Wars trivia question, it's actually not to find an answer. It's to prove that they know that answer. Right. Um, so uh, because they just, they just want to show off what they know as well, and, and I love that. I think that's great. And online, you are active on Twitter. Uh, how do you deal with fans that challenge you? Because you can take some heat sometimes, and, and you're not shy about coming back at people. Well, it's all in fun, and I know that that passion comes from a place of really loving something, right. um, and and so it's all coming from a good place, I think. If anything, you know, I, I just try to keep that in mind. Occasionally, you know, Twitter discussions can get a little heated, but for the most part, it's it's just trying to remind people that this is this thing is supposed to be fun. Star Wars is ultimately. Uh, something that's that's funny it wouldn't have lasted this long if it wasn't that case if that wasn't the case so you know if i see someone getting a little too heated about something i'll i'll hopefully try to talk them down a bit but um you know most the majority of the interactions are really really great and really fun i think i know the answer to this uh but is it kind of like working at santa's workshop and seeing how all the toys are made for you having been a lifelong star wars fan now that you are involved years ahead of these projects, do you still get the same blast when you go to the theaters as you might have if you hadn't been absolutely. working on them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always going to be a part of you that knows what might have been, mm-hmm. but you're able to put that away when you're finally able to show a, a finished film or a finished whatever that product is, uh, be it like a video game or a book. or But, you know, a film, particularly in the theatrical audience, is... is there's nothing quite like that because you're able to get that instant reaction from them. And I could live vicariously through those reactions. Um, you know, my wife also works here at Lucasfilm, but she doesn't work in a story capacity. And she, you know, loves Star Wars as well. So I will take her to these premieres or I'll, I'll, I'll sit beside her as a new Star Wars Rebels episode plays. And I'm able to see her reaction because I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't tell her anything about what's going on. We keep this stuff, you know, pretty buttoned down. So I get the benefit of not only being surprised when an idea is pitched, but then being, being able to uh, experience the surprise in someone who's never uh, seen that film or, or story at all. Why do you think that Star Wars and New Hope, when you first saw it, was so transformative for you? What was it that drew you in? Well, I was really young when I saw it, so it wasn't you know, anything terribly cerebral that drew me into it because it was just ultimately this amazing uh, showcase of really cool-looking things, cool-sounding things, and just a, a place, uh, you know, this, this toy box for the imagination. 
it wasn't until I got older that I came to appreciate it on a, on a different level. And I think that's one of the things that's really appealing about Star Wars in that it's not, you know, it's not just uh, popcorn. It's not just eye candy. There's a layer of uh, narrative nutrition underneath that where you're able to look at the mythology and historical connections and, and actually have a conversation about what it is we're looking at. So um, I think that's part of it. I think part of the appeal is that you're able to keep engaging with these stories on different levels. And, uh, and I think that's what we've seen with it being really multi-generational as adults are sharing it with their children now. And I think it's interesting. I've seen Rogue One. And if you wanted to, I suppose that you could look at it as a timely film, a political allegory about what's happening in the world right now. Or you can sit back and, and just be wowed by it. Uh, do you see these as political films? What I see them as, like, they're very human films. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, they're going to deal with these very timeless issues. Uh, I know there's, like, you know, there's pattern recognition of, of seeing where we are in the world today and recognizing things in Rogue One that uh, seem to connect. But you got to remember, this, this story was, you know, began its generation, like, four years ago when some of these issues that we talk about all the time were, weren't even, you know, a subject. Right. And you could, you could open up A New Hope and see... Uh, you know, reflections, and that was from 1977. So I think that connectivity is also, is only because these issues are timeless. They keep coming up because they're human issues, and, and it's just about how we live in this world and, and uh, how we connect to one another. I saw Rogue One earlier this week, and everyone's been asking me about it ever since. And I, I can't tell anything. I will tell them essentially yeah. what's in the trailer and nothing more because there are so many surprises, so many cool things that happen. I wonder how you're able to keep a lid on it because you know what's coming years in advance. You don't even tell your wife. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's part of the deal. Again, I think uh, working in story is you recognize the, that a key ingredient of story is, is the order of information that's conveyed in a story. And so I would much rather have someone learn the ending of Rogue One at the end of them watching Rogue One. Right. Uh, I recognize the value and importance of that. I know other people want to peek at their Christmas toys uh, or their Christmas presents early. You know, that's, that's how they work, but that's not how I work. And, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at keeping this stuff uh, on the down low. Was there ever any talk, or how much talk was there, about making this film like a true standalone film in the sense that if you've never seen a Star Wars movie, I think that you could go in and see this and it would make sense to you. It would be, uh, it is in that sense, a true standalone film. Was that deliberate or was that just a function of, of how the story unfolded? I think it was absolutely deliberate. I mean, um, it's funny, where we are in the filmmaking landscape is that it's actually, uh, I would argue that it's quite refreshing to be able to go to a movie and understand it to have a beginning, middle, and end, and it's not just the first chapter of something else, and you don't need to be, you know, think in your mind, oh, uh, I'm not going to get a complete picture here. I mean, there's obviously an appeal for that because Star Wars is a serial, but the standalones are deliberately just that, you know. Uh, there's definite benefit. I mean, you know that it connects to episode four, and there's going to be extra resonance for Star Wars fans who understand all these connections. But it was designed to have, you know, be an entry point and, and be complete. 
And it is. It feels that way. Now, there's a scene, though, that you've been saying that you would like people to watch before they see Rogue One. Um, I'd say, particularly for Star Wars fans, I think there's a scene that is honestly underrated because it does so much world building in just a few minutes, and it definitely uh, helped shape what the story of Rogue One is. And that's the scene of the, the Imperial generals and admirals aboard the Death Star talking about the Death Star, and uh, Governor Tarkin and Vader come in with the news that the Emperor has disbanded the Senate, and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a scene early in A New Hope. And I remember as a kid, it felt like the scene you kind of, you know, if you were ever to do this, you would fast-forward past because there's no robots, there's no space battles, there's no lightsabers. It's just a bunch of um, officer, uh, uniformed people talking. But it's, it's very, uh, I really like what George Lucas did in that scene because he was able to, to condense so much world building into one brief scene and so much of what Rogue One is came out of that scene. And so you're already now working on the next Star Wars and probably the next standalone. Is that right? Uh, we've got a lot of things. Yeah. Working, yes. So, yeah, so, but, but, uh, I mean, in, in the most general of terms, I'm just saying, like, you, you are years ahead of where we are right now. Yeah, and as we've announced, I mean, uh, episode eight is next year, the yeah. Han Solo standalone film is the year after that, and then episode nine is the year after that. So, wow. uh, all these, all these, uh, fires are in the iron as we speak. Well, well uh, best of luck with all of those. Uh, Rogue One is terrific. The reviews, uh, which were, Unembargoed at noontime today uh, have all been great. I don't know. Do you care about reviews? Um, you know, I, you always like to see the enthusiasm that's out there. I try not to, you know, it's you just lose an entire day just reading them, and, <laughs> and I don't have that time to lose. But, um, you know, for, for those who get it, it's great. Um, but, you know, ultimately, it's not going to change the way you approach these things. So mm -hmm. it's great to see the enthusiasm. Um, but ultimately, it's like, you know, we, 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 we trust our filmmakers, we trust our storytelling instincts, and we're glad when it lands with people, because that's, that's always great. Would it be unfair to say that you were the ultimate fanboy? <laughs> I would <laughs> definitely say I am a fanboy. I mean, I'm, I'm a diehard Star Wars fan. Ultimate, I guess, is up to someone. Uh, I don't. I don't want to throw that out there because then you know you'll, you'll get a challenge at the end. I'm not. I'm not looking to defend my title. That's right. You don't want to have a start another Twitter war over that. That's it. A quick little extra House of Kraus to celebrate the release of Rogue One: A Star Wars Story. We're back on Monday with a regular episode. A bit more Star Wars on that one. You'll hear from Riz Ahmed in a long. 20-minute-long conversation. Uh, also, David Frankel, the director of Collateral Beauty, will talk about the film and working with Will Smith. Until then, tell your friends about us. Be sure to come back on Monday, because you never know, well, I just told you who, but normally, you don't know who's going to stop by for a visit, and who knows, it might just be one of your favorites. <laughs>